Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host of this podcast, Pastor Sean Cole. I pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor of New Testament, Old Testament, theology, church history, ethics, a lot of different classes at Colorado Christian University. Over the past few podcasts, we've been looking at some different um, subjects that are somewhat controversial in Christianity. We looked at predestination, we looked at the issue of um, original sin and just how sinful humans are with total depravity. And in this podcast, I want to address an issue that is a question that's asked of me from time to time as pastor. In the Gospels, especially in, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus mentions blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as the only unforgivable sin. In Hebrews chapter 6, we find also that there seems to be this possibility of apostasy or being put in such a place that you're no longer able to be forgiven. And so the question then becomes, what is the unforgivable sin? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is apostasy? These are huge questions. Uh, The Arminian answer to that would be that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation. If you're truly saved, you can lose it. You can walk away. You can lose it. Um, Obviously, as as Reformed, as Calvinist, as Baptists, uh, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. We believe that those who are truly saved will be secured to the end. So in order to answer this question, I think we'll go back in time and to 2008, uh, February 1st of 2008, um, I preached a sermon as I was going through the Gospel of Mark, and as we got to chapter 3, I preached a sermon called The Unforgivable Sin, and so I think in order to answer the question, what is the unforgivable sin, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I think it may be just be good to, to listen to this message, and so um, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Let's listen to the sermon I gave back in 2008 on The Unforgivable Sin. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. As we go through the text, just in order as we've been going, verse 13 of chapter 3 is where we'll start. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. And have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brothers of James. To whom he also gave the name Belanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Jesus went up on a mountain and called those whom he willed. Christ is sovereign. His disciples don't go looking for him. His disciples don't go to him and say, Jesus, pick me for your team. Jesus sovereignly calls those whom he wills. And it's a very interesting phrase there in verse 14. My translation here in the ESV says he appointed 12. Literally in the original language, it means he created or he made 12. 
It harkens back to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is creating a new community. God is creating a new group, a new fellowship, a new family to be with him. He appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. That is true discipleship, being with Jesus, intimately connected with Christ in a personal relationship, being with Jesus. And he appointed them to do exactly what Jesus had been doing up to this point. Jesus had been preaching the gospel. Jesus had been casting out demons with authority, and he gives this authority to his disciples. They will be preachers. They will cast out demons. If you look all through the book of Acts, they are preachers. They're preaching the word of God. And Jesus calls the twelve. This is a word that Mark uses for them, the twelve. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament, the twelve tribes of Israel. God uh, is, is, is fashioning a new Israel, if you will. Jesus is calling these 12 apostles to be his new community of faith that will expand the gospel. Now, Mark gives a a literary technique here, which I like to call the sandwich technique. Okay, you all know what a sandwich is, right? Two pieces of bread stuff in the middle. Okay, he's going to give on this bookend, if you will. He's going to talk about Jesus's relationship with his family on this bookend. He's going to talk about Jesus' relationship with his family. And in the middle, we have some of the hardest sayings of Jesus. It's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. So let's look at the first bookend. Jesus' relationship with his family. In verse 20, it says, Then he went home, and that was probably Andrew and Peter's house, And the crowd, we have the crowd again, as we've seen every week, the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus is at the house. The crowds are crowding around. Everybody's there. Jesus can't even eat. His fame is spreading throughout the whole region. His parents, actually not his parents, but his family comes from Nazareth down to Galilee And they say, Jesus, you're kind of going a little crazy. Let's take you home and let you relax. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of every time turning on the TV, every time watching the Internet, every time opening my paper, hearing another story about Britney Spears. Now, poor girl, I'm sure she's got some problems and she does. And I feel sorry for her, but here's the situation. Her parents are coming in to save her, put her up in these hospitals. And and so they think she's crazy. And so uh, Britney Spears' parents are trying to come in and get her some rest and relaxation, some time of regrouping away from all the mayhem. Well, that's what's exactly going on here with Jesus' family. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we need to get you away. Get you away. Let's let's, let's let you regroup a little bit, Jesus, because you're kind of a little bit loco, okay? Now, the problem here is that Jesus is not crazy. Jesus is not insane. Jesus is on a mission from the Father, and he's in his right mind, and he is going to do God's will. But his family thinks he's insane. Now, this is an amazing accusation by his family. They think he's out of his mind. So that's the first bookend. The accusation by his family to say, Jesus, you're insane. Great family, right? All right. Now we get to the difficult part in the middle. Verse 22. And the scribes 
who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called to them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. A delegation of Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to silence this Jesus character once and for all. And they level two charges against Jesus. First of all, they say he's possessed by the devil. He's possessed by Satan. Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. The second thing they say is he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And these are two pretty strong charges. Beelzebul. We don't really know where this word comes from, but it means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Baal. It was often used in the Old Testament to refer to Baal, the Canaanite god, the pagan god. And so what they're saying is that Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. And Jesus does something here very, very crucial that we'll look at next week when we get to parables. But he speaks to them in parables. He's not going to answer their question directly. He's going to use some some stories or some allegories, some parables. And he basically says his argument's very clear. How can Satan cast out Satan? How can it's like a house divided? How can I if I'm working for Satan, why would I dare go cast out demons? It doesn't make any sense. And Jesus would probably be, I'd be paraphrasing Jesus, but he'd be like, if I'm casting out demons in the power of Satan, I'm doing a pretty bad job because I'm actually thwarting Satan's plans. I'm casting out demons. I'm on the offense against his kingdom. This doesn't make sense. And, and then he goes on to talk about the strong man. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Satan is the strong man. Now, Satan is strong. He's got power, but not unlimited power. He only has power that God allows him to have. And Jesus comes to bind Satan. Now, how does he do that? Jesus is coming, casting out demons. That's everything we've seen up to this point in chapter three is Jesus casting out demons. He's thwarting Satan's plans. And eventually Jesus is going to go to the cross and crush Satan once and for all. And so we have this image here of the strong man. And now we come to some of the harshest and most confusing words to ever be uttered by Jesus that have caused a lot of people fear, anxiety, questioning. It's this whole issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. An unforgivable sin, Jesus says. And that brings up a lot of questions that I've had many over the years in pastoral ministry ask me, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Can I commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is the unforgivable sin? Can I lose my salvation if I do it? What's the problem here? Well, what I want us to do is to go very slow. 
I'm very careful this morning because I want to make sure we all clearly understand. I'm going to give my best attempt this morning to articulate what I believe the Lord has laid upon my heart through the text to share with you what this means. But before we even start, let me just say this. God is a God of immense forgiveness. He can forgive the most grievous of sins. If you're here this morning, you've committed a great big sin. God can forgive you. God is a God of immense, generous forgiveness. Psalm 86, 5. The psalmist writes this. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 103, 2 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And we're very familiar with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is a forgiving God. But let me ask you just a very simple question. Is God's forgiveness automatic? We just automatically receive forgiveness without any conditions being met. What conditions have to be met in order for a person to receive God's forgiveness? Well, the Bible is very clear. It teaches that we must repent and trust. When we repent of our sins and we trust Christ and we ask for forgiveness upon the basis of our exercise of faith on the merits of Christ, he forgives our sins. But the question is, how do we repent? How do we trust? The Bible says we're dead in our sins. The Bible says that we're lost, that we're enslaved. The Bible says we have hearts of stone that need to be replaced with hearts of flesh. And so what the Bible teaches is that we need to be made alive. We need to be born again. We need to be given the gift of new life. Now, let me ask you a question. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that causes a a sinner to be regenerated. The, the, The instant that the Holy Spirit gives you new life, he grants to you the gifts of repentance, the gifts of faith. And so the only reason that you can trust Christ is because God has done a work through the Holy Spirit to give you those gifts in the new birth. And then once you trust Christ, you're forgiven, you're justified, you're saved. Now. Why just blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Why, why not blasphemy against God the Father or Jesus the Son? Notice the text. Let's read it very carefully. It says, all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, many of us in this room have probably used God's name as a cuss word. Is that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Many of us in this room probably even denied Christ. Maybe we were on the job and somebody was talking about God and Christ and we didn't speak up and we kind of just were a secret agent Christian and we didn't we didn't stand up for Christ. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not rejecting Christ. If that were true, then every single one of us in here would never be saved because there's been many of us that have rejected Christ time and time again. But at that moment that the Holy Spirit comes and saves us, he takes away that resistance. So it's not just rejecting Christ. As a matter of fact, who was the greatest rejecter of Christ in the Bible? Think about Paul for a moment. Paul was a blasphemer. 
He even tells us this in 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Paul, the words from his very mouth say this, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. Paul himself was a blasphemer, but God saved him by grace. Think about David. Ooh, David committed two really big sins, right? Can't get any bigger than murder and adultery, right? But David was forgiven and saved by grace. As a matter of fact, he tells us in Psalm 32, 1 through 2, this is a prayer of David after receiving forgiveness. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So Paul was a blasphemer. David was a murderer and adulterer. Abraham, he was a liar. Noah got drunk. What do you do with Peter? Peter denied Christ three times. But all three of those men are in heaven today and were saved by grace. So what is the unforgivable sin? It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, Sean, what in the world is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the text here for just a moment. We see it, the definition right here. But let's back up. Go back up to chapter 1, verse 7. Remember the very first sermon we preached through Mark. John the Baptist comes and and he preaches and he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I. The mighty one. In the original text, it really means the mighty one. And we know that Christ comes in the power of who? The Holy Spirit. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. So Christ comes empowered by the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. He casts out demons. He teaches. He preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit as the mighty one. He's, he's binding the strong man. Now, remember what happened last week in the synagogue. The man with the withered hand. How were the Pharisees responding to Jesus? Go back to chapter 3, verse 5, and let's look at some more contextual clues here to find out what Jesus is saying. Verse 5 of chapter 3, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their what? Hardness of heart. You have these scribes and Pharisees who are standing before Christ and seeing him perform miracles with a very hard heart. And it wasn't necessarily the miracles they were denying. They saw Jesus teach with authority. They saw him perform miracles. They knew he had power. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, what's the source of the power? Instead of saying the source of the power was the Holy Spirit, whom they should have recognized, they said the source of Jesus' power is Satan himself. Jesus is actually demonic He's actually doing satanic work is what these scribes and Pharisees were saying because they were so hardened in their hearts. They were hardened. They had gotten to a place of prolonged hardness. I want you to notice you don't get this in your English text, but in verse 22 and 30, in verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... Verse 30, for they had said, both those words are in the imperfect tense, which means it was a prolonged, continual, blasphemous, hardening accusation of Jesus being demon-possessed. So it was a prolonged hardness that these men had against Jesus, who was right in front of them, performing miracles. They knew, they should have known, that he was the Messiah. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but yet they charged what he was doing as 
the activity of none other than Satan himself. Now, they had placed themselves, because of their persistent hardness, beyond God's normal means of bringing a sinner to repentance. What are God's normal means of bringing a sinner to repentance? The Holy Spirit convicts a sinner and brings them to Christ. Every single one of you in this room, if you become a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit convicted you of sin. The Holy Spirit drew you to the Father. The Holy Spirit sovereignly regenerated you. The Holy Spirit's the one that brought you to Christ. Now, they have put themselves in a position to be beyond the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, writes this. He says, This sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the Prince of Darkness. John Piper defines it this way. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that a person is never able to repent and thus be forgiven. That's a scary thought. Think about it. There is a point in time where because of the resistance and the hardness, you place yourself beyond the normal means of the Holy Spirit convicting you. If the Holy Spirit says, no more, I'm not going to convict, I'm not going to regenerate, I'm not going to work in that person's life, that person will never come to faith. They will never receive forgiveness. The Holy Spirit says, I'm not dealing with them anymore. I've taken my convicting power out once and for all. And it's not just a a, a, a casual blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's slander. It's public slander against the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. These men here were slandering. They were public about it. They were continual about it. They were hardened about it. They were willful. They were blinded. Now, these were religious leaders. Some scholars in all my study this week said this. This sin can't be committed today. You can't commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today. And here's the reason why. The reason why is Jesus is no longer alive. You have to commit this sin with Jesus being alive on earth, in the flesh, doing miracles, and you attribute his miracles to Satan. And therefore, since Jesus is not alive on earth, you cannot commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, in principle, I agree with them. You can't convict, or you can't accuse Jesus of doing something satanic because he's not here. But there is ample New Testament evidence of this type of sin. Let me ask you a very poignant question. Have you ever heard a sermon on apostasy? What is apostasy? Anybody know what apostasy is? Do you have a category in your mind? And you should. Do you have a category in your mind for a person that quote-unquote trusted Christ They were excited about Jesus. They hung around the church for a while. They maybe even did some good things Christianly. But then at a moment in time later on, they decidedly rejected everything they knew, everything they believed about Jesus. Now, there's many different opinions about what happens with this. How do we define these people? Some people 
I disagree with them. Some people say, well, those are people that lost their salvation. Those were genuine Christians that lost their salvation. I don't have time to give you all the ample evidence in the Bible that teaches that once you're saved, you're eternally secure and God preserves you to the end. I don't believe it's a person that loses their salvation. Another view that's erroneous that I don't buy into says they're just a carnal Christian. They've accepted Jesus as Savior, but they haven't accepted him as Lord. And so they're living like a carnal Christian. The Bible knows of no category. You're either lost or you're saved. So what is it? What is an apostate? What is a person that has decidedly, willfully rejected the gospel that they once held on to? The parallel, the mirror image verse is in Hebrews chapter 6. So turn there with me for a moment. We're going to explore this verse in a little bit more detail this morning. Hebrews chapter 6. Now, review time. No one is ever saved without genuine repentance. If you have not repented of your sins, if you have not genuinely come to Christ, you are not saved. And therefore, if you cannot repent, if you do not repent, you will never receive forgiveness of your sins unless the Spirit of God has done a work in your life. We've got biblical words for these. What words do we use for this type of activity that God does? We've got words like conversion, regeneration, Adoption, justification, salvation. We've got biblical words for this. Now, what is Jesus's primary message in the book of Mark? Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is preaching a message of repentance. Repentance towards Christ. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. It's impossible. Now, let me ask you a question. Who can commit The unpardonable sin. Can a true Christian commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. A genuine, born-again, regenerate, saved Christian cannot commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There are too many verses in the Bible that teach eternal security. And if you were to place yourself by committing the unforgivable sin, that would mean somehow you would lose out on your salvation. And we strongly believe here at Emmanuel that that is not what the Bible teaches, that we're eternally secure in Christ. And so it cannot be a Christian. A genuine, born-again Christian cannot commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, cannot commit apostasy. So who then can commit apostasy? Who commits the unpardonable sin? Well, let's read Hebrews chapter 6. Starting in verse 4. And I want you to pay careful attention to the words here. What words are missing in relation to salvation type terminology? Verse 4. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and at its end is being burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Let me just give you some background here in Hebrews. 
chapter 1 to chapter 6, verse 3, the writer has been using the first person. Words like we, us, terms like beloved, brothers. He's talking about Christians. But then he makes a shift in verse 4 to the third person where he begins talking about those, they. He's purposely setting up another group of people in contradistinction to true believers. So who are the those, who are the they that he's talking about here? The category? It's those people who externally identified themselves with the church. They quote-unquote accepted Christ, but they were never, ever truly saved. They were fakes. They were phonies. Now, many people look at this text and say, this is the one proof, Sean, that you can lose your salvation. It's right there in Hebrews. I hope to argue this morning that this is the strongest case against that, to say it's not that you can lose your salvation. This is the sin of apostasy. And you must get that category in your mind because the Bible teaches there is such a thing as the sin of apostasy. There are those that fall away who were never saved, but they appeared to be saved. And we'll look at more detail next week when we look at the parable of the different types of soils. Now, let's look at these five benefits. The writer of Hebrews gives five benefits of those that have been around church. And notice the terminology here. What's lacking? The first one is this. They have once been enlightened. Enlightened means enlightened. It just means that you know the truth. You know the gospel facts. You can spout off the Bible verses. You've been given the information. You know the Bible stories. You know the gospel. You know John 3.16. They're enlightened. But notice what word is missing. Enlightened does not mean saved. There's no words like regeneration or justification or saved or grace. It just says they know the truth cognitively in their heads. Now let me ask you something very clearly here. Does this happen in the deep dark jungles of Africa among the natives that have never heard anything about Jesus before? No. Where does this happen? Happens at church. And this is where the message gets very clear this morning and very pointed. This message is to religious people that hang around church. Just as the scribes and Pharisees in the book of Mark hung around Jesus. Secondly, notice what happens. They have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, we don't know what the heavenly gift is. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be Jesus. It could be the gospel. Whatever it is, it's probably something related to salvation. But they've tasted it. They have not ingested it. They have not swallowed it. They just took a little taste of it. They've just been around enough of it. They've never truly been soundly saved or converted. They've just been close enough to it to be a fake, to know a little bit about the gospel. Thirdly, They were sharers in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where you might say, well, Sean, how can a true Christian, uh, this has got to teach you to lose your salvation because it says they were sharers in the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what that Greek word means. It's very clear. The word there is they had association with the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not describe Christians as those who have an association with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, not an association with the Holy Spirit. Oh, they've been around the Holy Spirit. They've seen evidences of the Holy Spirit. They may have seen it in their friends and family. They had seen evidences of God's Holy Spirit moving, but they were never a possessor of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Fourthly, 
They had tasted. There's that word again. They tasted the goodness of the word of God. They had heard good preaching. They were moved by. I'm sure that they probably sat there and thought, that's a great message. I mean, go out and be, be filled, be, be well. This is awesome. They tasted the good word of God. They tasted the message. But it never sunk in. It never produced fruit. And finally, it says they tasted the power of the ages to come. The powers of the ages to come. That word powers means miracles. It's used back in Hebrews chapter 2 to refer to Christ performing miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. They've been around miracles. They've seen the movement of God. They have all these blessings of being around God's people. They have been enlightened. They've tasted. They've been associated. They are around church so much so that they know the lingo, but they are never, ever saved they're never saved now do we have any other biblical evidences of this do we know of anybody in the bible that committed the sin of apostasy well if your name's demas second timothy 4 10 for demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to thessalonica demas was worked with paul he was ministering alongside of paul but the cares of the world got to him and he deserted Acts chapter 8, a man named Simon Magus. He was a magician. He got excited. Philip came to town preaching the gospel. Uh, Simon Magus got excited. He even got baptized. The only reason he trusted Christ was because he wanted the same powers that Philip had. He, 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 he got saved under auspicious uh, circumstances. And later on, it says that Peter stuck his finger in his face and said, You are a worker of iniquity. Simon Magus was an apostate. Who's the greatest apostate in the entire Bible? Judas, think about it. Judas was around Jesus. Judas was around the performing of miracles. Judas was around the casting out of demons. Judas knew his stuff. He was one of the 12 disciples. But the Bible says he's the son of perdition and he is not in heaven today. Now, let me just stop right here and give you some pastoral care. Because anytime you talk about the unforgivable sin, there's very many that God has wired you with tender consciences where you wonder if you've committed it. God has wired you with a tender conscience that you wonder if you've committed the unpardonable sin. And let me just tell you that evidence that you're sorrowful is probably good proof that you haven't committed that sin. If you're bothered by it, if you're repentant about it, if it, if it grieves you that you might have even thought that you did it, it's probably evidence that you didn't because it's a willful hardness over a prolonged amount of time. Wayne Grudem says this. He says the fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they've committed it yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek after God certainly do not fall into the category of those who are guilty of it. So let me just give you some encouragement. If you're here this morning, you think you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and you're bothered by it. And you're grieved that you may have committed the unforgivable sin. Rest assured that you probably haven't because God has just wired you with a tender conscience. But on the flip side, I want you to notice the strength and severity of the words of Christ. He says it will never be forgiven. We can't mince words here. He says it will never be forgiven. Here in Hebrews, what does the writer say? He says it is impossible, not improbable, 
not unlikely, he says it is impossible to be brought back to repentance. As a matter of fact, that word impossible is placed at the beginning of the Greek sentence to stress and give and give stress to the fact that this is the reality that it is impossible. What is it? It's a falling away. Look at verse six. If they fall away. That's in an, a Greek tense that means it's a decisive, deliberate, conscious act of falling away. In light of being near Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know you've been born again, you know you're saved, and you've, you've committed a grievous sin. You've committed a major sin. You've committed a really bad sin. Let me just give you encouragement in the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ that you can go and get forgiveness today. His sin covers, or his cross covers all your sin. So if you're struggling with the major sin that you've committed, that is not what we're talking about. It's not sins that you commit. It's not like lying or, or thievery. It's not that. It's the falling away. That is the sin. The falling away. Now, why is he talking to non-believers here? Well, look at verse 9. Notice what he switches back to in verse 9. He switches back to speaking about we, us, the beloved. Notice what he says very clearly. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, who's he talking about? Christians, the beloved, we feel sure of better things. What are the better things that he's talking about? Things that belong to salvation. In other words, these other five things that the writer of Hebrews has listed do not belong to salvation. They're not what believers experience. This is what apostate non-believers who kind of fake at it, play around at it, will experience. Now, here's the scary thing. I have a lot of hard sayings this morning. So Trevor said in the first, uh, first, mess, first service uh, in his opening for, for the guests to relax. I don't really want you to relax today because i got some hard sayings, okay? So don't be mad at me. Rejection of the truth in light of all this information. If you grow up in church and you have all this information, if you have all uh, of the exposure to the gospel and you reject it, there's a greater severity in hell for you. If you've received the truth multiple times and you reject it, there's greater severity in hell. And I think many, many people, quote-unquote professing Christians, have this idea that I can sin for a long time and God's a forgiving God and I know Jesus loves me and I know God has a wonderful plan for my life and I'm just going to go live like the devil. I'm going to go sin. I'm going to go reject Him. I'm going to go live the way I want to. And one of these days, I'll get back to the point where I'll ask Jesus into my heart and He will save me. Not necessarily. There comes a time where the Holy Spirit might say, no more. I'm done. John Piper gives this illustration of a buzzard. It's flying around looking at an ice, a little piece of ice floating down a river. And there's a carcass, a dead body on the ice. And the buzzard goes down there and starts eating uh, the dead animal on the ice. But the, the water is going towards a waterfall, a major waterfall. And the buzzard thinks to himself, well, I can just fly away. I'm a buzzard. I can fly away. And so he keeps eating. And he keeps eating. I can fly away. I'm a buzzard. I've got wings. 
Well, it gets time for the ice to about go over the waterfall, and the buzzard goes to lift his wings to fly, and guess what? His claws are stuck in the ice, and he goes down. Don't play that game. There could come a time, I don't know, when the Holy Spirit says, I'm withdrawing forever my convicting power in your life. So how do we respond to a teaching like this? I'll be real honest with you. I've struggled with how to preach this this morning. And I'm not going to mince words. This teaching should terrify the socks off some people in this room. It's meant to terrify. It's meant to scare. It's meant to warn. It's meant for you to go to Christ today to find forgiveness. It means that you can't play around. can't play with fire. And let me give another caution here. We are never, ever called to stand in judgment of another person and say, that person has committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That person is an apostate. We don't have that right. We can never look at another person and say, they've committed the unforgivable sin. We, cannot, we don't know their life. We don't know what God's doing. Only God is sovereign in that process. We have no right to make a pronouncement on someone and say, they have gone too far. We don't know when that happens. We don't know the timing. God could do a miracle in their life up to the last moment of their life. We can't make that pronouncement. We can pray for them. We can, we can encourage them. Uh, we can look at the fruit of their life. But God does the working in that sinner's life. We can't stand in judgment on that. But here's the flip side. While we can't make a judgment on that, often, often what happens an apostate will show their true colors when persecution comes. In the days ahead, and I believe this, in our nation, there will be persecution of Christians. And we will know the meaning of apostasy. Persecution brings apostasy to the surface. Now, in Matthew's account of this exchange, Matthew Right before Jesus gives this teaching on blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, in Matthew 12:30, Jesus makes this statement. It's not in Mark, but it's in Matthew's account. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either a child of mercy or a child of the devil. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. There's no straddling the fence, middle ground. You're either lost or you're saved. There's no middle ground with Christ. Now, I've given you two of the most scary passages in Scripture. It's impossible to be brought back to repentance. The sin will never be forgiven. Let me give you the last scary verse, okay? Out of the mouth of Jesus. Matthew 7, 20 through 23. These are the words of our Savior. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That verse makes me weep. It makes me cry. 
There are many on the day of judgment that will stand before Jesus and he'll say, I never knew you. And you'll give excuse after excuse of all these things that you've done. And they'll say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Let's get back to Mark. We're talking about this sandwich technique. This relationship that Mark has going between Jesus and his family. And we pick up on the second bookend that kind of encloses this this whole story here in verses 31 through 34. And his mothers and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? It's pretty startling, Jesus. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. His family's on the outside. They're calling to Jesus. Jesus, come home. You're crazy. You need to come home. And Jesus says, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? And probably people, probably the people that are calling you outside, Jesus, you need to go out there. And he says, no. Whoever does the will of my father, he is my true family. And this would have been shocking because the time that Mark wrote this, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was already the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Mary was honored. And so what Jesus is saying is you can't get into heaven on the coattails of your family. You cannot get into heaven just because you grew up in a Christian home, or you were confirmed, or you went to catechism, or you got baptized, or your parents are Christians, or I went to vacation Bible school, on and on and on. That does not make you a member of God's family. You cannot get in on the coattails of your own works or on your family. What does a true member of Jesus' family look like? He says right here, whoever does the will of God. Back in Matthew 7, he says, whoever does the will of God. Proof that you are saved is that you will live a lifestyle where you are doing the will of God. If you are living in persistent sin, if you are living in persistent disobedience, if you are living in persistent rejection and willful disobedience to Christ, please don't fool yourself to think that you're saved. Now, I can't look into your heart, but the Bible makes it very clear. If you are saved, you will obey Jesus as a lifestyle. You will live under his lordship. And here's my concern today. I have prayed hard this week about how to say this. And I have wrestled with the Bible. But here's where the rubber meets the road. And I want to talk to a certain group of people this morning. I am very concerned about our children and our youth. In Emmanuel Baptist Church. You can grow up coming to Emmanuel Baptist Church and hear good preaching and know your Bible stories and go to Team Kid and go to Vacation Bible School and go to youth group and go on mission trips and know the lingo and know the terminology and fool your parents and do all these things around the community of faith called Emmanuel Baptist Church and never be soundly saved. And as your pastor, that scares me to death. There are some in this room that are playing around. They're playing a game. You're faking it. You're faking it. And I'm concerned about our youth. And so here's my exhortation to you as your pastor. Please repent. Please just ask Jesus to give you a new heart. And I know the games that many play in their heads, even if you're an adult. Well, I'm embarrassed. 
everybody knows I'm a Christian. I've been coming to Emmanuel my whole life. And if I if I suddenly confess Christ, I'm going to be embarrassed because then I'm going to have to get baptized and people are going to have to know I wasn't a Christian. They know I'm not faking it. And it's just easier to not deal with it because I don't want to be embarrassed by all what people are going to say. Let me just tell you something. Would you rather be embarrassed by what people say or stand in front of God on the day of judgment and look him in the eye and him say, I never knew you. Don't let embarrassment get in the way of coming to Christ today. We have no evidence in the Bible of anybody ever asking forgiveness and Jesus saying no. If you truly come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you truly trust him, you ask him to give you a new heart, you ask him to come into your life, you confess him as Lord, you repent of your sins, the Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this message today is meant to cause fear and trembling in those that are playing the game. For the rest of us that are believers, the message should be a message of encouragement because we know that God will preserve us. God will keep us. And if we sin grievously, there's still forgiveness at the cross. Please, if you're struggling with a major sin this morning and you're beaten up over it and you're, you're guilt-ridden over that sin and you think in your mind, God can never forgive me. I've blown it so bad. I, I'm beyond His reach. There's no hope for me. I might as well just give it up. The Bible says Jesus is blood covers all your sin. And He can forgive you. And He can love you. And He can restore you this morning. So it's a wake-up call. I know this is a tough message to hear. It's harder to preach. But here's the bottom line. Don't play around. Don't play around. You are never guaranteed another breath you're never guaranteed another day. God is sovereign over your life. Don't play around.